For the week of July 3rd, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk about the fight to stop Trump's coming Supreme Court nominee with Indivisible's Associate Policy Director, Elizabeth Beavers, who lays out Indivisible's two-step plan for stopping Trump. The first is to get 51 senators to block a nominee. For the second step, if we really want to check Trump and we want to protect the Supreme Court and protect our rights more broadly, we've got to flip the Senate. We will also have our weekly calls to action with Indivisible Washington's 8th District Research Team Leader, Stephen Wilhelm. And then we will have our calendar of events with Indivisible Washington's 8th's Aaron Albanese, who will give us a rundown on what is happening for activists all across the state. That is coming up, so stay with us. So as most of you all know, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy's retirement announcement last week sent shockwaves across the progressive world. Indivisible wasted no time in laying out a strategy that may potentially prevent Trump from being able to jam through a nominee, and he is expected to announce that nominee on the 9th. So we have invited our friend Indivisible's Associate Policy Director, Elizabeth Beavers, to talk about Indivisible's strategy. Elizabeth, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Great to be back. So, you know, I do want to discuss the strategy, but first I want to talk briefly about where we're at right now as we record on July 3rd. Uh, Trump initially had a list of 25 names that uh, he could draw from to nominate, uh, and that I believe has since been narrowed down. He has been having meetings. Do you have a sense of who the top contenders are right now? There is speculation abounding. Um, You know, a lot of people think that um, maybe Trump will choose a woman or a person of color um, to sort of give the illusion of progress or of a candidate who's maybe not that extreme. Um, Hearing a lot of different rumors fly around um, right now, the thing we do know is that list you mentioned, the 25 uh, list of potential contenders, they are all on that list because they were handpicked by far right organizations, including the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, mm. uh, because they are hostile to the right to choose and hostile to health care. Um, so we know that from a starting point that if someone is on that list, they are an extremist on those two areas. Um, we'll see who the actual nominee is and what other surprises await us um, about the particular person. But um, yeah, that's it. So right now, actually, just to give you the latest intel, um, what I'm hearing is um, we are expecting Trump to announce his pick on the 9th. Um, and it sounds like a lot of people expect him to announce it in prime time. So like, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Again, that is also speculation, but that's the latest buzz. Well, it sounds like something that Trump would do given his reality television past. <laughs> um, and, you know, you mentioned uh, that all of these nominees have been selected because they are hostile to reproductive rights and health care, which does, in fact, give the Democrats a slight uh, advantage here, given the fact that we are in an election year, a midterm election year. So let's talk about the strategy that Indivisible has laid out for or stopping one of Trump's picks from getting through. It depends on getting 51 senators to vote no. The Dems only have 49. And uh, we can talk about the game plan. But first, just remind us again why the Republicans only need a simple majority as opposed to 60, which used to be the norm in the Senate. Uh, because Mitch McConnell is shameless and he blew up all norms when it comes to uh, confirming nominees uh, around the Gorsuch fight. He eliminated the 60 threshold filibuster on this. And so um, 
we are working with a simple majority only that is needed for Trump to get an extremist nominee through. So there is a strategy to get 251 votes. It uh, does involve two Republican senators getting on board, one of whom is Susan Collins of Maine. She said on Sunday that she would not vote to confirm an anti-choice nominee. But uh, Collins did vote for Neil Gorsuch, who many believe would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. What is your take on Collins' position right now? Yeah, it's a great point, and I think it's worth drilling down into this. Um, Collins has put out this weirdly tenuous set of statements where she indicates she won't confirm anyone who is anti-choice, but she also doesn't really explain what she means by anti-choice. And in fact, we have every reason to think that, uh, you know, a nominee will do the same song and dance as always, right? And talk about Roe is settled law and they'll follow precedent and that might be good enough for her. Um, That is certainly not good enough. We have every expectation that just like Gorsuch, like you mentioned, um, this particular person will probably give all the right assurances, but then will actually get on the bench and um, have no problem striking down, you know, decades of precedent, whether it's on Roe or anything else. And actually, we did see that with Gorsuch already. Um, You know, there were a number of really alarming cases that came through the court this particular term, and Gorsuch cited um, on the extreme right every single time, voted to uh, tear down 100 years of precedent and organized labor, for example. So um, Collins is definitely going to need pressure. Truly, unless a nominee actually affirmatively says, I will protect Roe, I will uphold the right to choose, um, which I'm sure a Trump nominee is not going to do that. Um, There's no reason to think this person is anti-choice. The burden is on them to prove that, I guess is what I'm saying. Sure. Uh, The burden is on this nominee to make that clear. And it sounds like from every every indication that we're getting from the list of 25 that you talked about, that's not going to be forthcoming. Um, The other most likely no vote would be Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. She is another pro-choice Republican. Um, Any word on where she's at right now? So I will tell you, I was a a little heartened to see her say that she really hopes Trump will look beyond the list in making his choice. Um, Honestly, that's more than a few Democrats have said already um, in saying that this whole list is totally unacceptable and they're automatically there should be no nominee that goes forward from that list. Now, she didn't quite take it that far, but even her expressing some discomfort with that list, um, I think lets us know that she is very aware that this list is controversial and that her constituents are looking for her to at least uh, look with a little more scrutiny, if not outright oppose someone who is on this list. Well, so it's imperative that, you know, there are two senators, two Republican senators who will oppose. And we'll get to the the Democrats who might potentially be on the fence as well. But in terms of these two Republican senators, what sorts of uh, tools, I guess, are available to us to to put the pressure on them to commit, really, truly commit to voting against a, a Trump nominee? Um, so, you know, this is, and we outlined this in the, the strategy you mentioned, this is one of those examples where really all we can do is get 51 senators to oppose. You know, we at Indivisible love a good stalling technique or like a little known procedural tactic, but unfortunately in this case, there's really nothing we can do along those lines. Mitch McConnell can and will bring a nominee to the floor. So it's the good old fashioned Indivisible Guide tactics that work yet again, just like we saw in healthcare, just like we saw in a number of different fights. Um, 
people should be calling, call every day, call until they can't ignore you, um, show up in district. Uh, uh, we're calling for a week of action where um, people show up in district in front of Senate offices, make a scene, have an event, go inside, do a visit with a staffer, make sure they know um, that you as a constituent are expecting them to vote against an extreme Trump nominee. Yeah. And, and along those lines, and I do want to get back to the week of action that Indivisible has planned, but you mentioned, and, and we got the chance to meet in person at an Indivisible training last weekend yeah. in Minnesota. Uh, and you said that another opportunity for constituents is coming up this week on July 4th, where a lot of senators will be out at public events, right? Uh, yes, exactly. And we're in the middle of recess right now. It, uh, you know, that's it's the thing that members of Congress love is showing up at barbecues and parades and, you know, public events and getting photo ops with happy constituents. Um, this week, recess is a great time to show up in person and uh, confront them in person, pressure them in person, try to get that commitment that they're going to oppose an extreme nominee. Now, and this is a total curveball, but if, say, Murkowski or Collins can't be persuaded to vote against a Trump judicial nominee, are there any other Republican senators that you see as being on the fence? We hear all the time about, you know, Bob Corker of Tennessee, who's retiring, Jeff Flake of Arizona, who's retiring. They have been known to buck the president's on, I guess, issues of style is maybe the best way to put it, but they really haven't done anything substantive in voting against policy. Right. Do, do you see either of them as potentially being persuadable here? Yeah, I totally agree with you here. Um, the, the names Flake, Heller, Corker are being thrown around a lot, and there's every reason for constituents of those senators to be pressuring them. I personally... Um, <laughs> this is like a, a, a source of like a pet peeve of mine. I'm actually really sick of Jeff Flake tweeting things about the president and then rubber stamping his agenda. Yeah. Um, we've got basically no evidence that Flake is actually willing to buck the president. And so um, this is certainly his time to shine, if so. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think, goodness, like, who knows, right? I mean, there's every reason to to hope that there are other Republicans that might be persuadable and constituents should certainly push them in that direction. You know, something else that is kind of a wild card in this, uh, John McCain announced that he is officially resigning on July 4th and is pushing to have his wife, Cindy, replace him. And he's expressly said that he's doing that in order to help get a Trump nominee through. Does that change the calculus here at all? Um, so, uh, I think the, the strategy we're working from here, uh, is we are trying to sort of set up a safety net, um, so that we have at least two Republicans who are voting with all of the Democrats, which of course is a baseline. Um, so in a way this doesn't really change the strategy. That is still really what we need to be safe. And, you know, uh, we saw McCain's leadership on healthcare, not necessarily on everything since Trump became president, but, um, you know, McCain is someone who, um, is able to pressure the party also. And um, it would be great if he can do that. It would be great um, if this can in some way help that momentum. But I, you know, um, I hate to be a broken record, but at the end of the day, we do need enough senators to oppose on the floor um, to win here. That's just what we need. Well, so then that brings me to the next point, which is another concern is keeping red state Democratic senators on board and specifically those who are up for reelection in November. We're talking Heidi Heitkamp, Joe Manchin and Joe Donnelly. 
Uh, Trump met with them recently, along with Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley. What are your thoughts on where these Democrats are right now? So we definitely have our eye on um, at least the three Democrats who voted to confirm Gorsuch. Um, there are, of course, other Democrats who um, have not voted consistently against the Trump agenda. Um, some of the more red state leaning Democrats. Um, it's really hard to say, you know, um, there have been some kind of mixed signals out there from someone like Joe Manchin, for example, um, who, you know, out of the gate, sort of signaled that he was going to be really conciliatory here and work with whoever the nominee is. And um, and then he talked about how, you know, he doesn't want, he understands that Roe is in the balance and he wants to protect the right to choose. So um, we're continuing to just sort of measure these signals. I do think that's why pressure is so necessary because we need to get them on the record as soon as possible. Um, you know, even before Trump says who the nominee is, this is actually a great time to try to get some of the more moderate Dems on the record um, to show that they understand from the outset that all of these nominees are that extreme, that it's their constituents think it's totally fine and would back them up and saying that no one from the list is acceptable. So uh, again, and yeah, I, I feel like a, a broken record as well, but pressure, <laughs> pressure, pressure, of course. So, right. you know, um, a, a number of Democratic senators have said that uh, since Obama was blocked from appointing Merrick Garland under Mitch McConnell's uh, premise that it was an election year and that people should speak, right. Trump should similarly not get to nominate anybody during an election year so that people can speak. But Cory Booker recently said, and some others have said, that the more troubling issue here is that Trump is currently under federal investigation and therefore shouldn't be allowed to appoint a judge on those grounds. And that's the battle that the Democrats should be waging. What's your take on that? Do you see that as winnable? So, look, we totally agree there, right? I mean, uh, this particular justice could be a deciding vote in a case about Trump himself. <laughs> and so it feels a little ludicrous that Trump gets to handpick that person. That being said, uh, there is nothing Democrats can do about this. Um, we wish there were. If there were procedural tactics that we thought could meaningfully delay something, that's great. It's, you know, it's great to outline the hypocrisy here, but um, look, we don't disagree at all. The problem is that Mitch McConnell runs the show in the Senate and he can and will bring someone to the floor and he'll probably do it as soon as possible. Um, and that's why I guess I should say the second part of our strategy, we've been talking so much about the first part, which is, yep. you know, get enough senators, but the second part is we do have to flip the Senate eventually, hopefully in November. Um, if we really want to check Trump and we want to protect the Supreme Court um, and protect our rights more broadly, we've got to flip the Senate um, because the reason McConnell can be such a hypocrite and the reason Trump gets to do this and the reason that there's so little we can do to delay or stop this is because the Republicans have power. Um, and so particularly in the Senate where uh, the majority leader has the full agenda setting ability to decide what comes to the floor, um, we've got to pursue that second piece of action which is um, we've got to defeat this nominee, but then we also have to flip the Senate. Well, so then if the Democrats do manage to take the Senate in November, how would you like to see them deal with the judicial nominees going forward? Would you like to see them be obstructionist like McConnell? Would, would you like to see them put pressure on Trump to put forth maybe a more moderate nominee? How would you like to see it play out? 
Yeah, so, you know, that certainly is kind of opening up a whole other chapter of, of what we'd like to see here. I think that, um, you know, from the outset, uh, if Democrats were able to coalesce around, um, you know, holding off any confirmation until the investigation is over, until an election has happened, whatever it is, they can do that if they want. Um, also, uh, they have full power then to strike down and continue to vote down uh, any nominee that would pose a threat to our rights, um, whether that's choice or whatever that is. So uh, there's a number of different options for them there. Um, and, you know, those options only get unlocked by flipping the Senate. Um, so, uh, you know, for now, it's all defense. But um, if the Democrats were to take over, there's, they certainly have a, a lot more options at their disposal. You know, I will just ask you, because this fight would happen then after the election, do you do you worry at all that this issue could potentially energize Republicans, especially evangelicals, to turn out in force in November? Oh, sure. Right. I mean, uh, Republicans have absolutely mastered the electoral strategy of like scaremongering people to vote based on su the Supreme Court. Um, that's that's just the way it is. But I also think that um, with everything that hangs in the balance, it, it works the other way. Um, the progressive base uh, is so much more aware of the stakes of the upcoming elections because our rights hang in the balance, because this, this seat hangs in the balance. So um, I, I would, to me, I would make the argument that uh, if there is a risk of one base being riled up, it, it works the other way for the other one. Yeah. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Okay, so the states that we're talking about where we have vulnerable uh, senators, Republican senators, are Texas, Nevada, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arizona. For those of us not in the states that I just mentioned, what can those what what can people be doing to help take back the Senate? Yes, great question. Uh, there are a lot of things we can do. We have an incredible political program here that's answering that exact question. The first thing people can do uh, is sign up for the national phone bank that we're putting together. People are going to be calling and texting uh, into those states and uh, doing that voter contact, getting people to be mobilized to show up to vote. Uh, building that momentum towards Election Day. There's a lot of things that people outside those states can do to mobilize voters in state. Um, and Indivisible has an incredible set of tools that makes it extremely easy to do that. Um, I would point people to um, the, the resource you mentioned that lays out the two-part strategy. Uh, there is a link to sign up for that phone bank um, as, as a perfect first step for what people can do there. All right, good. I'm going to make sure to have all of that information available at IndivisiblePodcast.org. And so as we talked about uh, a little bit earlier, and actually this is really good timing because, as you know, I always like to end on a positive note whenever possible. Yes. Uh, I will mention that, yes, Indivisible is going to be planning a week of action. Uh, you're partnering with a number of other organizations for this. First, just tell us who is involved and then what sorts of actions you're planning. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have a ton of incredible partners who are joining with us for the week of action starting July 9th. Uh, we have Move On, we have NARAL, People for the American Way, Daily Coast, Center for American Progress, National Women's Law Center, Healthcare Voter, Protect Our Care, tons of partners who are plugging into this. What we're calling for simply uh, are in-person events and visits at in-district Senate offices. Um, we're trying to get events on the map all over the country, especially in those target states. 
Um, we have a toolkit people can use to plan their event. We have a map where people can put their event. Um, and if you put your event on the map, we can recruit to it and drive turnout. Um, we are working across coalition here because there are a lot of constituencies who have equities in what happens here. So um, it's at savescotus.indivisible.org. Um, and that's where people can find the info. Great. I, and again, once again, I will, I'll, I'll be a broken record and say that information will also be available at indivisiblepodcast.org. You know, before we go, I just want to underscore something that you tweeted about uh, this morning. Uh, and that is, and this has to do with putting pressure on senators regarding the mm. SCOTUS fight uh, that is happening right now. You said that it is never a good idea to call senators outside of your district. I think most people listening know why, but you listed three points and I would love for you to just reiterate those for us before we go. Yeah, of course. And I have gotten a little bit of pushback from that. I noticed. (laughs) (laughs) The life on Twitter, that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, totally. You know, and and I agree. I think most people in the indivisible base uh, groups know that. Um, But, you know, especially in moments like this, it can still feel tempting. Like we really, everybody wants to call Susan Collins, right? Right. Um, So the reason we advise against that, we think everyone should have their voice heard. We think everyone should um, use their constituent power. But the key word there is constituent. Um, Three quick reasons why we give this advice. One um, is calling senators who are not yours clogs up the phone lines so actual constituents can't get through to their own members of Congress. Uh, You are not only wasting time, but you are blocking other people's time. Uh, Number two, and this is possibly the most important one, um, members of Congress do not care about your cause if you are not their constituent. Um, That's a hard truth, but it's just true. They literally only exist to serve their constituents. Um, And if they're getting messages from other people, then they just don't care. And that actually leads to the third point, which is, in fact, that could give them an excuse to dismiss a concern um, by saying, oh, these are like out of state troublemakers and rabble rousers. And these are like nationally, you know, choreographed messages. These aren't actual concerns for my constituents. So in fact, it can be counterproductive and give them the opposite message. So um, I appreciate you bringing that up. We still get those questions sometimes like, wait, but are you sure we can't just call somebody else's senator? Definitely do not do it. And this is why. And I will just underscore the importance of even though here in Washington, as you know, we have two Democratic senators, it's very important to let them know that we as their constituents have their back when they uh, you know, work as a block with the rest of the Democratic senators to oppose a Trump nominee, right? Oh, totally. And, you know, our entire indivisible staff, well, not entire, but the bulk of our indivisible staff are made up of former congressional staffers, and they can attest to that, um, that, you know, you don't always get phone calls when you do the right thing. Sometimes you only get angry phone calls and uh, shoring up a member of Congress, even someone you assume is going to be good on something is so useful uh, because they can take it and they can cite it. And if they get pushback or they have to take a hard vote, um, they're really well-founded in saying that their constituents have their back and that they have that political support to do what they need to do. So there you go, gang. All right. That's a perfect place to leave it. As always, Elizabeth Biebers, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
Next, we are joined by Stephen Wilhelm. Stephen is the leader of the research team for Washington's 8th District Indivisible, and he is here with some calls to action for us this week. Hey, Stephen. Hey, how's it going, Stephen? It's going great, man. So uh, so just dovetailing off what we just spoke with Elizabeth about, uh, we know that we are going to be calling both of our senators to make sure that they're committed to voting no on whoever Trump's SCOTUS nominee is, and we're going to do that consistently. The second step in this fight, should we make it to that point, is to flip the Senate. And, you know, we know what's at stake. So what are we asking listeners here to do to help, uh, you know, flip the Senate here in Washington state? Number one, we need to hold serve in our own state. So we have uh, Senator Maria Cantwell is up for election this year. And uh, I was surprised to look this week and see that there are 29 candidates for that Senate seat. Wow. Um, I didn't realize so, that. Yeah, neither did I. And again, a top two primary. So what we absolutely can't afford to do is to have people take a position, as it were, you know, rather than, you know, remembering that elections have consequences, but just, you know, I'm, I want to make my position known here. And so I'm going to make a vote that doesn't really contribute to getting a viable candidate elected. I would certainly urge Democrats. I know some people have got uh, problems with uh, Senator Cantwell, and, and uh, of the two, I, I certainly like uh, Senator Murray better. But um, Senator Cantwell would be better than any other um, Republican, Independent, or any other party candidate who's running. So uh, vote for a Democratic uh, senator, can- Senate candidate who could win, and I think that personally think that's Maria Cantwell. All right. So let's shift uh, back over next and talk about the immigration fight. Uh, We talked about that uh, last time we spoke. So we are asking now for our senators to defund ICE, the DHS and the Border Patrol. Uh, So first, where do things stand in terms of Trump's executive order uh, that he signed regarding uh, their immigration policy? Yeah. You know, regarding his immigration order itself, it's hard to say, meaning he signed it. I can't tell that there's been a lot of action on uh, really doing anything since then. Um, another thing that's come out that's been pretty horrifying to me is that, you know, number one, these uh, family separations didn't just start when Sessions announced them. They actually started them uh, a year ago, um, and they just were not well publicized or, or, you know, there wasn't a zero tolerance policy. Right. So there weren't as many of them. Um, but uh, this has been going on for a long time. And, and frankly, as near as I can tell anyway, the, Repu- the, the administration never had a plan to reunite these families. They just, as near as I can tell, didn't care. Um, and if somebody wanted to sue them, well, maybe they might try whatever they could try to reunite them. But so I, although they say they're going to try and reunite these families, I still can't tell what their plan is. Now, fortunately, um, the, the courts have gotten involved. Thank goodness for lawyers and judges. Um, and, and there have been a couple of uh, judicial decisions in the last uh, week or so that are really trying to drive some action uh, behind that executive order. And so those two uh, decisions are, uh, number one, they, they're not giving the administration an infinite amount of time to reunite families. They, they told them that they had 30 days. The judge, one judge told the administration, you have 30 days to reunite families. Yeah. And for especially young children, I think younger than five, but I don't remember the age, for especially young children, you've got 14 days to reunite families. Now, again, I've heard nothing, so I don't know what they're doing about this, um, but there is at least a uh, judgment in place that, that they need to do that. And then another, uh, uh, there was an article in the Seattle Times this morning I'd encourage people to read, um, but apparently there was a, a decision yesterday 
Um, one of the uh, slimy things that the administration has been doing, can I say slimy on a podcast? <laughs> you has, you, has you just doing, did. Yeah. <laughs> um, has been to, you know, indefinitely uh, detain people um, that have um, claims to asylum. And so what the judge told the administration yesterday was, no, you can't detain them indefinitely. You either need to give the ICE policy, uh, you need to follow your own policy. And your own policy is you need to give them a, a, a hearing, a credible, what's called a credible fear hearing within seven days, or you need to release them. Um, and so that judgment was was made yesterday. And so it'll be really interesting to see how the administration scrambles to comply with these two uh, decisions. So everything is really up in the air right now. And nobody really can say for, for sure what what's happening in terms of a policy level. But we are, as I said, asking our senators to defund ICE, the DHS and the Border Patrol. So talk about that. What specifically are we asking people to say when they call? So the request there is, um, number one, to tell the senators uh, thank you for fighting against family separations. They've been pretty good about giving uh, visibility to this and to co-sponsoring legislation, both Senator Feinstein's legislation and other uh, bills to um, resist the administration. But also to specifically vote no. As uh, people probably know, there are a lot of budget and appropriations bills that are going through between now and September. So we're asking our senators to vote no on any future spending bills that don't reduce funding for uh, ICE, DHS, or Customs and Border Patrol, um, because those agencies have been responsible for the cruel and inhumane actions that we're seeing. They've got to be held accountable, and we don't want to see any additional funding for these departments until Congress has exercised oversight and has confirmed that the administration is no longer separating families. They, they say it, but we can't see it. Um, and also confirmed that, that the administration has a plan for reuniting families. So no funding until we see, uh, you know, see what the administration is doing. Perfect. And, you know, I should mention there's a measure in the House to actually abolish ICE. This is put forth by Wisconsin Representative Mark Pocan. Uh, so talk about that and then talk about what we should ask our representatives here in Washington to do. That's a real good uh, question. I, I struggled with this personally myself, and I'm, I'm going to guess a lot of progressives may struggle with this a little bit. Um, but without going into um, you know a lot of details, I did come down personally on the opinion that um, something needs to be done differently with ICE. I mean, they they have been terrorizing immigrant communities. Um, they've been a key part of splitting up, uh, splitting children from their uh, parents. Um, there's certainly some debate about whether um, these hundred-mile, you know, enforcement uh, zones that they're that they're enforcing are walking onto buses and demanding people's papers, whether that's really constitutional or not. Yeah. And I just think at the end of the day, we, I, need to do something to say, you know what, this just isn't right. And um, some people might think it's a bit extreme, and they may have a point. Um, but let's start with um, taking a position that, you know what, this organization just has no credibility anymore it, it, and, and has to be reorganized some, somehow. Let's legislate that it be abolished. Recall that this is not a new organization. It started after the September 11th attack. That's right. Um, so it hasn't, it hasn't been in, in existence very long. And there have been a lot of uh, ties to, you know, questionable – 
uh, I don't want to call them hate organizations, but really questionable uh, uh, organizations with really questionable um, attitudes towards immigrants. And, and uh, it's time to take another look at them. Let's support this legislation that says abolish it. If what happens is it ends up being reorganized or, or somehow perhaps not abolished but, but somehow improved, then I can go for that. So that's the long story. The short story is uh, Representative Pocan, along with a couple of other folks, um, uh, Blumenauer in Oregon, uh, McGovern in Massachusetts, and our own uh, Pramila Jayapal here in Washington um, are, are calling for the elimination of ICE. I haven't. I looked this morning, and I haven't seen a, a bill number yet from Mr. Pocan, so um, I'm still looking for that. But he says he will introduce legislation, and I would urge um, everybody, whether they've got a Democratic or a Republican representative, to call them up and urge their uh, representative to co-sponsor co um, Representative Pocan's bill when it when it comes into the House when he introduces it. Great. Okay. Yeah. And well noted on all of that. And, you know, so finally, while all of this is happening, uh, there is a push in the House right now to cut Medicare, Medicaid and the ACA. Um, it's a, it's an odd time for Republicans to be doing that, given the fact that there's a, an election coming in November that is uh, very tenuous for them, but they're doing it anyway. So talk about that and then talk about what we can be doing in response. Yeah, it does seem on a you know rational basis that this is a pretty crazy vote. Certainly, Medicare has been uh, referred to as the third rail in American politics. Yeah. But we we need to remember that this isn't that unusual for the House. What what the House likes to do, uh, especially this conservative Republican House likes to do, is play to their base, establish their financially conservative bona fides. Um, by voting for these really radical things like cutting Medicare, Medicaid, and the Affordable Care Act, knowing that that's never going to fly in the Senate and that the Senate will come back with some more rational uh, bill. They're supposed um, to be the adults that, in the room, yeah. <laughs> exactly. As, as I think it was Thomas Jefferson or, or James Madison said, the cooling saucer um, to, to cool the, the emotions, um, come back with something a little bit more rational. And that allows the House Republicans, uh, people like Jim Jordan and, and others, to have their cake and eat it, too. Well, I voted for this really radical bill, but the, you know, the, the lazy Senate uh, wouldn't, wouldn't go along with me. So I, I tried to do it, but they wouldn't help. The, the other thing to keep in mind, uh, and I was just realizing this this morning, is that um, this allows the Republicans to do as they did for, for Affordable Care Act repeal and for the tax scam is once you have a budget that's passed, it allows you to provide reconciliation instructions that allows you to go after affordable care repeal or uh, go after round two of tax cuts with just 51 votes in the Senate instead of uh, 60. So even if this gets modified a little bit, passing any kind of a budget um, will allow Republicans to, um, as I say, attempt to repeal uh, affordable care or uh, go after a permanent um, cuts to wealthy people. So um, what we're urging everybody to do is to, again, call your representative, Democrat or Republican, and tell them, look, this budget is just not supported by the American people. It hurts real Americans. Um, this isn't an opportunity for you to take a public stand. Um, you need to do what's right for Americans. Don't vote to support this because it's the wrong budget priorities, and certainly don't vote to support it to allow you to try and take health care away from us or to try and uh, give more tax cuts to the wealthy. All right. Well, thank, thank you so much, Stephen, for all of that. And I will say uh, happy Fourth of July, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next time.
Happy Fourth of July to you and your family, Stefan. And finally this week, we are joined by our friend Aaron Albanese, who is going to bring us a calendar of upcoming events here in the state. Hello, Aaron. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, we've been covering the immigration crisis uh, a lot on the show for the last few weeks. So I would love to start with a training that is being put on by MAPS, that is the Muslim Association of Puget Sound. So tell us about that. Yes. Um, so they're hosting We Stand with Immigrants, which is an activism symposium. There'll be allyship and education training. And this is going to be at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound in Redmond. The address is 17550 Northeast 67th Court. And that will be taking place from 1130 a.m. to 4 p.m. this Saturday. Great. Uh, you know, also on Saturday, July 7th, the North Seattle Progressives are running an event for families and loved ones of immigrants being held at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, and so just to also clarify for people that have been down to the Federal Detention Center in SeaTac, this is separate from that at right. the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. Um, there have been solidarity events there pretty regularly, and that's going to be uh, from 1.30 to 4 p.m. on Saturday, July 7th, and the address is 1623 East J Street in Tacoma. And this will be to provide services for families and loved ones of immigrants who are being held at the detention center. Uh, they're going to have home baked goods, juice, tea, coffee, and conversation uh, in solidarity with these families who have been affected by Trump's immigration policies. So again, a very necessary event if you are able to make it. So then on July 11th, it's the Washington's 8th Congressional District Gun Sense Candidate Forum. What's happening there and where's it going to be? Um, so that's at the Sideview Community Center Gymnasium in North Bend. It's hosted by the Snoqualmie Valley Chapter of Moms Demand Action. And uh, only candidates rated as gun sense candidates by Moms Demand Action will participate. So in the 8th Congressional District, that is Jason Ritterizer, Shannon Hader, and Kim Schreier. And surprisingly, no Dino Rossi there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, initiative I-1639, this is the gun safety measure, uh, is going to be submitting their signatures to the Secretary of State in Olympia on Friday, July 6th. Um, this, they're, they're turning this into an event. Um, initiatives in the state need 300,000 signatures to qualify for the ballot. So how many signatures did 1639 gather? They announced yesterday that they have gathered over 350,000 signatures in total, including 60,000 volunteer signatures. Wow. That, and that's fantastic because, you know, you need to kind of go up and over in most cases because some of the signatures are invalidated and thrown out. So uh, where is this going to be and when? This is taking place at the Elections Division, 520 Union Street in Olympia. Um, they're going to be, I guess, start delivering the signatures at 1030 a.m. on Friday, and the event will begin at 11. They're asking supporters to wear orange in okay. support of gun safety. And then finally, uh, Healthcare for All Washington is planning an event this month. Uh, what can you tell us about that? They are having their summer gala and auction that is going to take place on Saturday, July 28th at 415 Westlake Banquet Hall. Tickets and more information are available at healthcareforallwa.org. And uh, they are going to have live music, speakers, including State Senator David Frocht and State Rep Nicole Macri. 
And uh, Healthcare for All is an organization of activists that are working to get single-payer health care passed in Washington State. This event will take place from 7 to 10 p.m., and general admission is $100. Well, that all sounds great, and I will make sure to have all of that information for listeners on IndivisiblePodcast.org and also on this SoundCloud page. Erin, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, I know I say it a bunch, but for links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there. If you want to stay in touch, if you want to make suggestions for guests or topics or even just say hi, the address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Elizabeth Beavers, Stephen Wilhelm and Aaron Albanese. And thanks as always to you for listening. I will say happy 4th of July. Uh, I, for one, am going to spend part of the day thinking about all of the things that are still good about this country and worth fighting for. And a big part of that is all of you who are listening and fighting right alongside me. Uh, We're in this together, gang. Have a great holiday and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.